We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. You know, this Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students. America first. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic. Hello, welcome to We the Deplorables. This is the place for faith, family, and freedom, and also the place for hard topics and hard discussions. And tonight's episode, uh, this is going to be part one. Uh, we're I don't know how many episodes this will end up, but we're going to discuss a disturbing trend, and that is the Christian left. The Christian left consists of those that are hijacking the church with liberal thought and those that are buying into the woke religion. And by the way, wokeness is a religion, even legally defined, uh, it's a religion. And I just learned about that in um, the book Woke Dot or Woke uh, Inc. And I highly recommend it, but that is not our recommended reading today. However, I would definitely have that in your library. But uh, the church has been hijacked. And when I use the term left, I am referring to those that want to replace capitalism with socialism, that believe in open borders, uh, that don't believe that life begins at conception, uh, that don't believe in heaven and don't believe in hell. And believe it or not, there are some disturbing statistics of Christians and what they believe and don't believe anymore. And I don't understand, quite frankly, how you can be a Christian and not believe in hell and not believe in heaven. Like, what's the point? The whole point is to be born again, bring the kingdom of God to earth in the way that fits why you were born, and then we get to enjoy eternity with Father. I mean, if there is no hope for eternal life, then why are we even doing this? And so I wanted to give you some research from Pew Research uh, them and Gallup have some great things. And uh, let me get over here. And again, these will be in your show notes. There's also some PDFs. So just uh, let's go with the belief in hell since I started off with that. Now, people who are not Christian, uh, 58% of people believe that there is a hell, which I thought was interesting. Over half the population believe. Um, 34% don't and then an 8% of that group do not uh, know. But when you look at religious group, only 82% of evangelical Protestants believe in hell. You would think that that would be 100. Uh, you also have uh, historically black Protestants at the same level. And then you have mainline Protestant uh, is at 60%. Jewish is at 22%. Muslims at 76%, uh, 
Orthodox Christian at 59%, and then religious nuns, uh, religious nuns at 27%. But again, I'm trying to figure out how is it that you have uh, 18% who either don't believe or don't know, and they say that they're a Christian. Now, if you look at the age distribution of belief in hell, um, when it comes to, uh, you know, probably religious affiliation, what's interesting is that the group that's like 39 to 49, and then even 50 to 64, they believe in hell. Um, 35%, they have the highest rate of the 30s to 49s, the 50s to 64s are 27%, and the 65 plus are 17. The 18 to 29s are at 21%. What's interesting is they actually believe in it more than the 65 pluses. So there's something weird going on there. And then, of course, we have um, about the same, actually, with those who don't believe and then the others. Um, Now, as far as generations where you have the younger millennial, the older Generation X, baby boomers, uh, silent and greatest, those that believe are actually the baby boomers the most. That's 32%. What's interesting with them is they were in the Jesus movement, uh, but almost the same number don't believe in that group. And it seems like that's pretty much across the board, except for the younger millennials. Uh, less of them believe that there is a hell than uh, uh, those that do believe. And then we've got the gender composition. It's uh, men are 47% believe, women are 53%, uh, don't believe 51%, 49% for me- females, and then uh, others are very much the same. Also, what's interesting is when it comes to race, more whites believe in hell than black, Asian, Latino, and other So I'm not sure uh, what's going on here. Now, uh, when you look at immigrant status, immigrants, second generation and third generation, the third generation or higher believe uh, in hell at 77%, uh, 72% don't uh, believe. And so it's just a very interesting dynamic. Um, Even income plays a role, et cetera. And then if you look at those who believe in heaven, so those that are not Christian, uh, 72% believe there's a heaven, 21% don't believe, and 7% don't know. As far as religious group, when you look at the evangelical, the Catholic, historically black uh, Protestant, Mormon, even Muslim, they're all higher. They're in the 80 to 90s. So the picture is that people will believe in heaven before they will believe in hell. And then, of course, it goes through the age generate the age distributions, the um, generationals as far as millennials, etc. Uh, men, more men don't believe in heaven than women. I thought that was kind of interesting. And then as far as racial, uh, more whites don't believe in heaven uh, than uh, blacks, Asian, Latinos, and others. Uh, and then like a high 71% just don't know. Um, belief in God, uh, it's absolutely certain for those who don't know him at 63%. Uh, fairly certain at 20 Believe in God where they're not certain, but maybe is uh, 15%. Uh, 1% don't know, 9% don't believe in God. So it seems like there's definitely 
a trend toward people believing that he exists. But again, in the evangelical Protestant, the historically black Protestant, Jehovah Witness, Mormon, Muslim, etc., uh, they believe in God, but it's not 100%, which again is very interesting to me because what's the purpose? Now, those that are fairly certain with the evangelical um, Protestant put this about a 98%, and then the historically uh, black Protestants also at 98% for those that are fairly certain God exists. But I'm just confused as to why that wouldn't be 100%. And then if you look at um, uh, both parties, Democrat and Republican, fewer now say being Christian and born in the U.S. is important to being truly American. So when you look at um, the 2016 compared to uh, 2021 or 2020 levels, so in four years, it was very important. 96% of uh, Republicans believe that speaking English was important to be an American. Now only 89% of those do. And then in 16, uh, 2016, 87% of Democrats believed only 65% do now. And that's, you know, 22 points down. Uh, the need to share U.S. customs and traditions is fairly consistent with uh, Republicans, it's uh, 89% in 2016, 86% in 2020. But when it comes to Democrats, uh, 79% believe that you needed to know U.S. customs and traditions, but now only 59% do. But what's even more interesting as far as being a Christian, 63% of Republicans believe that was important in 2016. Only 48% believe it today. And of course, Democrats were only at 41% in 16, and now they're at 25. And then being born in the USA uh, is about the same. So uh, we're definitely seeing a decline on that regard when it comes to things that are uh, important uh, as believers. We're also seeing a decline in people who identify as Christian. Uh, in 2007, 68% of Americans, and this was among millennials uh, that were born in 1981 to 1996, uh, believed uh, that they were a Christian at the marker of 2018, 2019, only 49%. And then the unaffiliated or none uh, has grown from 25% to 40%. And there's one more I've got here. So basically... Religious nuns have been growing as a share of the U.S. adult population, and Christians have been declining for some time. In the center's most current polling, and that's a Pew Research, 63% of U.S. adults identifying as Christian and 20% uh, as none describe you know, themselves as atheists, five were agnostics, and 18s were nothing in particular. But by comparison, from just a decade ago in 2009, 77% of U.S. adults describe themselves as Christians, uh, that's 14 points higher than it is today. And then only 17% describe themselves as religious nons or nons, yeah, and that's 11 points lower than today. So there's definitely a shift in belief. There's a shift in the foundation of this country being a Christian country, and so the question has to be asked, how did the decline of authentic Christianity happen? Uh, 
And by, and by authentic, I mean Christianity that believes in God, heaven and hell, that Jesus was and is God in the flesh, that he died, that he rose again on the third day. Uh, and he's now at this present time seated in heaven uh, by Father. Uh, Christians who know Jesus will return a second time. Christ followers who believe that the Bible is truth, not allegory. Uh, people who know you must be born again to have eternal life, not just be a good person. And you actually believe in eternal life and who also believe in the power of prayer and miracles. So I'm going to be reading some out of the book, The Christian Left by Lucas Miles, which I highly recommend. It is our recommended reading. We're going to be going through some of his points over the next several episodes. But let me read to you uh, his idea on how this shift occurred. And uh, so he um, says, quote, one Christian, well, actually, let me go above. Okay, so how did a nation built upon Judeo-Christian values ratified by a Declaration of Independence signed by over 29 members of the clergy and later established in a motto of In God We Trust arrive at the place where the future of the church is at stake and faith in Christianity is uh, in potential disrepair? Certainly, we can blame external factors such as a false application of the separation of church and state or the removal of prayer in schools. But I'd like to start by looking at a less obvious culprit, the church itself. In an attempt to reach the consumer-driven culture of the 80s and early 70s, churches around the country began shifting their ministries to accommodate visitors in new and exciting ways. Steeple and stained glass were knocked over and removed. Uh, pews were replaced with theater-style chairs, sermons were shortened, Bible readings limited, and hymns retired and replaced with rock and roll songs about God, all in an attempt to make church more accessible and entertaining to seekers and unbelievers alike. Which, by the way, I have no problem with uh, worship as, as it is. Um, I have no problem at all with different types of chairs. Uh, I do think the word has been dumbed down or limited and shortened in churches, like the truth is not being preached uh, more principle is being preached over truth, but some things, it doesn't bother me at all. But then he goes on and he says, a movement known as the seeker-sensitive model of church drew an explosive number of new converts and changed the landscape of churches across America. But this growth came with an unforeseen cost. One Christian writer called it an ideological collision in which this new consumer style of church clashed with a deep-seated desire for authenticity within a rising post-modern culture. The result, although many got saved, few, it seems, got discipled. Now, he goes on to say, everyone should have expected this outcome. How can one expect to mature in faith with only limited or watered-down teachings of Jesus? Once they recognized the damage, churches began shifting the church model to a more action-oriented form of worship with an emphasis on being the hands and feet of Jesus. This would later become known as social justice gospel. 
Feeding programs were reinvigorated to reach a new generation of immigrants. Church leaders reimagined neighborhood outreaches to minister to marginalized people groups and formed new digital efforts of ministry through the birth of social media. But instead of maintaining the gospel's core teachings of repentance and forgiveness of sins, Sunday morning services soon summarize the teachings of Jesus simply as feed the hungry, clothe the poor, and accept people who are different than you. The, this attempt to correct the religiosity and legalistic teachings of the previous generation once again exposed the church to additional injury. The adoption of left-leaning doctrines such as universalism and a de- deviation for the first time in recent history from the authority of scripture. He goes on to say they thought make church more consumable and easier to digest and more people can be saved. But during the modernization of the form of the church, the function of the church also began to change unintentionally distancing people from the value and purpose of core sacraments, such as the use of scripture for the primary basis for understanding God baptism and the Lord's supper. Arguably, though, the church's compassion and desire for results got it into the most trouble. Protests, community organizing, and government-sponsored initiatives were all evidence that the Christian left identified a gap that existed between the needs of humanity and what the church currently offered, and they wanted to do something about it. But instead of looking to Jesus and the Bible for answers, the emerging Christian left began seeking a new bedfellow to increase the reach of its message, the state. Certainly, this wasn't the first time the church and state interacted in America. Historically, the church in America has served as a shining light to the state. Prominent Christian leaders like Billy Graham and Chuck Colson counseled presidents and spoke to Congress. Local churches going together joined together to petition state leaders over issues like Roe versus Wade and pastors throughout the centuries, from Jonathan Edwards to Charles Spurgeon to Franklin Graham, exhorted our country against sin and godlessness to ensure that America would remain one nation under God. So compassion and the desire for results got us into the most trouble. And uh, I want to talk real quick about this compassion thing and doing good to save others. With the lockdowns of 2020, well, 2019 and then on into 2020, and now we, here we are in 2021 with some, uh, you know, uh, restrictions, no matter if you get vaccinated or not, you still have to wear a mask, you still can't do what you want in certain states, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, all of this, the closing of churches, the archaic and, um, what's the word, authoritarian measures that have been taken against a virus that has a very small death rate, uh, all of these actions and activities uh, were for, quote, the good of man. In other words, for the first time in history, churches were shut down in the middle of a pandemic for the first time ever. We've never been shut down in a pandemic or an epidemic. Instead, the church has always been on the front lines to help during those times. But pastors throughout the country were like, well, for the good of the people and to protect others, we need to shut down. Or they'd whip out the Romans 13 card. Well, we're supposed to obey our local governments, et cetera, et cetera. Well, here's the thing. What happened is much damage. You don't want to be motivated by compassion, okay? 
the only directives and motivation you should have is what Holy Spirit is telling you to do. It is not, well, for the sake of everybody, we're going to do this, this, and this. And so when you look at even President Trump, where to uh, save American lives, he shut down the entire country. And I knew the minute he shut down the entire country, he lost the election of 2020 because it was going to open up a Pandora's box uh, in the election process that he probably would not be able to overcome. Now, I prayed until the election because I really wanted him in. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm the way where God may tell me something, but that doesn't mean it's a promise and that doesn't mean it's, you know, in stone. I can pray, 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 and perhaps we can shift something in the spirit. So uh, you might see this where, you know, someone comes to you for help. And without, you know, checking with Holy Spirit or making sure it was a good thing to do, you start helping an individual. And before you know it, they're taking all of your time. They're sucking all of your energy out of you. Or all of a sudden you have all these problems and your life is intertwined with all of their problems. And it could have started with a question, Holy Spirit, is this person my assignment? Because if a person is your assignment, then you will be empowered to help this individual. If they're not your assignment, then that means that they're going to be a drain on your time, a drain on your emotions, and a drain on drain on your uh, spiritual life and maybe even your finances. So when you look at taking action for the good of everybody else, you've got to make sure it's Holy Spirit's will. Because if not, then what's going to happen is people that have no conscience, who do not care, are going to take advantage of that as much as they are allowed. Now, here's the deal. You don't need to change the gospel. We don't need to add or take away from the word or who God is. He has designed his story to sustain itself throughout mankind's story, and it doesn't need any help from us. Okay, so we don't need to water down the word. We don't need to change what it means. We don't need to try to explain away difficult ideas or passages. It helps to give some context. But what we need to do is deliver the pure, unadulterated word of God in complete faith that it is more than allegory. It is truth. And uh, unfortunately, those things have definitely taken a shift in this nation, which is why there's some Christians who do not believe in heaven or hell. Now, shifting to who exactly and what exactly is the Christian left, it is a growing constituency of Christians who have adopted either knowingly or unknowingly leftist, socialistic, and communistic thinking, ideals, values, and innovations. Now, Uh, It seems that the Trojan horses of the Christian left have been activated and even placed on display by mainline Christian institutions, faith-oriented content creators, and even the local church, in many cases without their knowledge. This modern-day Trojan horse has been constructed with the deceptive lumber of superior morality, elevated knowledge, superior love, and holy language that calls into question anyone who disagrees with the left's proposed moral stances. Okay. So, you know, who can argue that the church 
shouldn't be involved in caring for the poor and offering free health care for the sick or welcoming the stranger from a foreign land. We know that. Sadly, though, these mantras are a ruse. They're disguised as compassion to the church, but they actually ambush um, true Christian values. So if you look at, for example, the um, open borders, you know, welcoming the immigrant, welco- welcoming those who are escaping uh, bad countries, Israel had immigration laws because you can welcome people into your country, but there needs to be a process. There needs to be a border. In fact, it was a crime to move a border. You had to have a process uh, for immigrants or you wouldn't have a country. It's all in the Bible. In fact, I did a teaching on immigration uh, in the 2020, in the year 2020 before the election, or it might have been actually 2019. And so you've got uh, a situation where, you know, in Israel, if you were a legal immigrant, you had access to all that uh, government that country had uh, for you. If you were illegal, you did not have all the rights and all the access. However, they would feed you and provide you a place to stay until you could either be legal or be sent back to your own country. This is in the Bible. So if the Bible is the truth of God, then it shows that the argument that we should open our arms to just anyone who wants to come to this country illegally is not an accurate or a wise judgment call or helping the poor. Well, we should take from those who have and give to the poor. Well, the word poor in the Bible, which many, you know, um, uh, don't read anymore, is it's poor that they are absolutely destitute and helpless to take care of themselves either um, and usually from some type of uh, health or mental health aspect. So, uh, you know, a blind beggar can't work. So it was upon the nation of Israel to give alms and to take care of the blind, the lame, etc. Uh, so these are people who are not able to help themselves. But if you go to the Christian left idea of helping the poor, it's anyone who they consider a minority or marginalized or who are being uh, oppressed by white people. Those are the people that they consider poor. So that means tax the rich, which always trickles down to the middle class. I don't know if you guys know, but Obama almost wiped out the middle class completely. If it wasn't for President Trump, there still would not be a middle class. And Biden is seeking to wipe it out completely. So it always trickles down. You can't tax the rich and think it doesn't affect. And you know who it affects the most? It actually affects poor people the most because where maybe you had a job, now you don't have one where maybe you were working full-time. Now you're part-time taxes and taxing the rich uh, will always um, hurt the poor the most because the rich are rich for a reason. They're very smart and they can always make more money. They know the science of making more money, but they're going to cut costs elsewhere, typically in jobs in order to keep their business prosperous and make uh, wealth for themselves. And it may sound heartless, but that's just how it is. It's a utopian idea to think that you can rob the rich to take care of the poor. But here's the idea, the definition of poor. Poor people in God's eyes are not those who can go get a job. Poor people in God's eyes are not those who have no mental or physical disability. 
they can go out and get a job and they can take care of themselves. Um, in the church where a lot of people, they quote how everybody sold everything they had and gave it to, you know, those who didn't actually, there were specific requirements that you had to meet in order to receive any help from the church. One of them was you had to be a true widow, meaning your husband was dead and you had no kids that could take you into their home and take care of you. So if you were a true widow, then you received help. Uh, Orphans who could not take care of themselves, maybe they weren't of age yet, uh, they were just children, those would receive help. And then you could give to a working believer who needed an extra hand. And that's all, I've taught a lot of the, about that in my um, church at the thehubapostolictraining.com. But basically, that was a person who was working, but they needed a helping hand, and so you could give to them to help them maybe pay that unexpected bill, etc., You then have Paul who said, if you don't work, you don't eat. And that was a command. And he even likened people who didn't work as lazy. And that word lazy means that they were not in the military in their position. It was a military term. In other words, you had gone AWOL. Why did Paul use a word that means you've gone AWOL? Because the marketplace is where the battle is at, and that's where Christians are supposed to be engaged, not within four church walls. So here you can see the idea of socialists, that Jesus was socialist. It's bunk. It's not real. That's not a real argument. And uh, so we have these social justice issues that uh, the Christian left have adopted. They sound very good. They sound compassionate. They sound like things that we should be doing. And yet, it's a Trojan horse. Okay? So, you know, like I just read, the doctrines of the church that were legalistic, fundamentalist, or maybe hypocritical that people saw, uh, the leftist doctrines of compassion and social justice was very attractive. But the response to error isn't more error. Christians must learn to separate God from leaders and man-made doctrines and traditions from the word that do not reflect his character. Just because your leader is legalistic, fundamentalist, or a hypocrite doesn't mean God is. And if that's the case, you probably need to get out of that church. Any doctrine or tradition that does not reflect God's character or that disempowers people is not from God. So we also have to become true students of the word so that we can recognize anything that is contrary to it. So let me just kick over a sacred cow. One of the examples is that once you're born again, you're still a sinner. People have taken words and things that Paul wrote out of context, and they're now telling Christians, it doesn't matter if you've been born again, you're still a sinner. That's not correct. A sinner is a person who is designed to sin. That's what we were before you're born again. Once you're born again, you're a new creation. And according to Romans chapter six, the old sinful nature is now dead. Dead people don't sin. So then people might be like, well, if that's the case, then why do I still sin? Because the working out of your salvation is reading the word, allowing it to transform Uh, form your mind, your will, and your emotions, 
and come into agreement with the reality of who you are as a born again creation. So we're now saints. We're now righteous. We're holy. We live from a place of victory, not toward it. We're uh, perfect in Jesus Christ. So the more you renew your mind with the word, the less you do the things you used to do. I mean, think about it. Before we were born again, we were trained as sinners. Once we're born again, we have to be retrained. And that's where the word comes in. So I don't know if this is good news for you. I might have just made you mad. Why you would be mad at the idea of not being a sinner, I have no clue. But I'm here to tell you that if you've been born again and hopefully spirit-filled, you are no longer a sinner. So Lucas Miles calls those that have experienced wounding in the past in the church as those who might suffer from post-traumatic disorder <laughs> or post-church traumatic disorder. And uh, I, I mean, I have uh, experienced that myself. I belong to a church that um, basically betrayed me. When I went to them for help, I was blamed for what happened. Uh, I was wounded multiple times. Uh, they tried to tell me what I could and could not do outside of the church, which that's now, you know, going way beyond what you're saying uh, or what your authority is. Uh, they wrote letters to my board members and slandered my name. Um, they created a narrative that no matter what I said, it wasn't true. And so um, finally one day, uh, I got some counsel from one of my board members. And thank goodness they believed in me and they knew that what was written wasn't true. And uh, they said, you know what, you probably need to go uh, before it gets worse. Because at this point, I'd had trauma after trauma, lots and lots of tears, lots and lots of anxiety. And so they recommended that I write a thank you note to them, send our last tithe check and move on. And I did. And um, it was the best thing I did. And I felt so much freedom. But I didn't walk away from God. I didn't walk away from true community. I have, and I always have had, a strong relationship with God that is a guiding factor in all of my decisions and how I interpret doctrine and how I interpret what people do to me. The people that did those things to me, they're not God, and it wasn't His will. Their uh, mistakes, which none of them were malicious, were not a picture of God and how He saw me and, and our relationship. How they treated me, I already knew what true community was supposed to look like way before I entered uh, church doors. So I was able to recover quickly and maintain a close relationship with God in spite of what people did to me. Here you have Martin Luther, who was wholly committed to truth, even if it brought him into conflict with the things he was taught by the church at the time. But his truth was anchored in the Bible, not ideas and not theories. The Bible is the only compass that we can rely on because it most clearly communicates God, his character and his will, especially the epistles. Because if you try to interpret God solely through the Old Testament, you're going to come away with a judgmental madman who likes to commit genocide. And I don't have time to get into all of that and how that's not truth. 
But if you want to be established in the faith, you need to read the epistles, especially Paul's, and you need to study Jesus in the gospels as now a picture of who you are. In contrast, the Christian left, quote, perceive themselves to be too enlightened to rely on the Bible as their ultimate guide to truth. So let me read some more out of uh, Lucas Miles' book. He says this, In blatant contrast to Luther's commitment to the scriptures, the Christian left perceive themselves to be too enlightened to rely on the Bible as their ultimate guide to truth. This form of doctrinal drift rooted in Gnostic thinking relies heavily on reason and logic to establish truth and places human reasoning on a self-made pedestal above the Bible regarding issues of doctrine, morality, and justice. Rather than allowing the Bible to be a commentary on itself, the early stages of Christian, Christian progressivism demand that a believer slowly reject allegiance to the written word of God, which is supposed to conform and validate the person of Christ and the truth of God, and subtly, through humanistic thinking, follow his own vain imaginations and theological ponderings. Certainly, no one intends to fall into error, but over time, beginning with the 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 denial of basic truths like God as creator, repentance, forgiveness of sin, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Many drift unknowingly into dangerously dissolute waters of progressivism. So it's very interesting. And he talks about how you know, doctrine is like a buoy that's uh, floating in the, the ocean. And fixed to the bottom of the ocean floor is a strong cable and then a weight and he says that the weight for us is scripture and it's belief in scripture. And that's what keeps doctrine anchored. But in the Christian left, there's a detachment from the scripture. Um, he says, imagine that a belief system begins to persuade us uh, uh, and that we wrongly elevate that system over the truth of Scripture. Eventually, something has to give, since our pride will usually prevent us from relinquishing our position on a belief or a set of belief, beliefs. It follows that we must then detach ourselves from our dependence on Scriptures to define truth. In other words, the Christian left uh, thinking is a belief system that if you keep going down that path, you eventually have to choose between the Christian left belief and doctrine or the word of God. I mean, it's crazy to me. Um, it, but I think, again, it goes back to we had decades where the word was not preached in absolute truth. And so because it wasn't, because people weren't taught discipleship and how to d- disciple themselves, they have no grid to tell whether a doctrine or an idea is from God or isn't. And it's really, really sad. Um, so what he, he says more, he goes, this means that if our belief in and connection to the infallibility of the word of God is lost, like a boy it, uh, ripped from its foundation, we too run the risk of floating out into the life-threatening waters of liberal extremism. Furthermore, since an individual's new doctrine inevitably violates the teachings of Jesus, his new belief system creates a tension in his heart. The need to resolve this tension only further impels himself, propels himself into distancing himself from the Bible. Finally, 
while floating detached from the truth, he begins interpreting scripture with what feels like divine inspiration, yet with each new wave of revelation, he floats closer and closer to the shores of agnostic skepticism before eventually running aground against the rocks of atheism. Now, this, uh, this is an ancient problem. Oops, sorry about that. Um, because uh, agnosticism has been a problem since the early church. In fact, uh, the book of Colossians is a, a, a response to uh, Gnosticism and agnosticism that was seeking to gain a foothold in the church. So false doctrine uh, has been a problem in the church for many, many years. The problem is, as I alluded to earlier, is that... Um, the combination of the Christian left with the state or government is making it a very powerful force that is threatening Christianity and Christians and our freedoms in this country on a level that I can't remember ever seeing. Maybe it was in the past, but I don't remember seeing it uh, personally. Now, you may think, well, you know, are you just sounding an alarm that, you know, isn't really happening? I mean, you know, left leftist thinking sounds enlightened and inclusive, but, you know, is it really dangerous to the Christian faith? Well, yes, um, it sounds good, but you've got to follow it to its conclusion. So, like, let's look at erasing genders, Okay. Erasing genders is threatening decades of victories of women's rights. How can you have rights as a female if females don't exist? How can you uh, make the argument, even legally, if the idea that there's male and female is erased by the human government and the Christian left? Now, interestingly, the desire to erase genders is actually... Um, seen in the word where it says there's neither male nor female in Christ. Now, what does he mean by that? It means that any of the limitations that society would try to put on us based on gender do not exist in Christ. Meaning, if a woman is called to preach and teach in the kingdom, she should be preaching and teaching. Now, does it mean that she's an authoritarian or over her husband in their home? Absolutely not. But that desire to erase gender is uh, probably a byproduct of churches not giving place for women. Leftist reasoning and doctrine, doctrine is threatening core beliefs uh, that we're supposed to adhere to. And it's in all denominations. Uh, if you listen to the BLM uh, series that I did, one of the co-founders, I can't remember her name, did a demonic ceremony and ritual in a Methodist church calling on the dead. I've got an example here. Uh, there were comments made by an American Baptist minister and member of USA Today's Board of Contributors, Oliver Thomas, who shared his frightening theological perspective regarding the LGBTQ agenda. He said, it's difficult to watch good people buy into the sincere but misguided notion that being a faithful Christian means accepting everything the Bible teaches. Um, yeah, it's our core book. We're supposed to believe everything it teaches. 
We're supposed to correctly interpret it. That's a requirement. But there's nowhere where it says that we're not supposed to believe and accept everything it teaches. He then adds to his progressive dialectic uh, a spiritual downgrading of the valuable contribution our patriarchal patriarchal fathers made to the Christian faith. He adds, churches will continue hemorrhaging members and money at an alarming rate until we muster the courage to face the truth. We got it wrong on gays and lesbians. This shouldn't alarm or surprise us. We have learned some things the ancients, including Moses and Paul, simply did not know. And if that weren't enough, Thomas takes his extra-biblical Christian left ideologies to the hilt by questioning Jesus's capability for knowledge at the time of his presence on earth suggesting that the most authoritative biblical figure of all time, the word himself, by the way, Christ himself was somehow insufficiently woke to the issues of modern society. According to Thomas, Christ was limited to what first century humans knew and therefore couldn't possibly be aware of the million of a million other things the centuries have taught us. For Thomas, even verses that used to serve as a final authority for Christians on a given topic are now treated with contempt, marginalized, criticized, or considered to be inapplicable to the new believer in the modern era. Apparently, Thomas and others from the Christian left are the only gatekeepers of correct theology and should be revered even more than our patriarchal biblical predecessors on doctrinal issues of the Christian faith. This rip current propelling the errors of the Christian left is what my friend, Dr. Jim Richards, calls spiritual extrapolation. He says, extrapolation is based on a logic that creates non-existent formulas. This equals that. When questioned about the basis of the process of reasoning, it usually comes back to that's what I believe or that's how I see it. It doesn't matter we see an issue if it's not supported by the truth of the word. Or you might have heard this phrase, that's your truth. Okay, so spiritual extrapolation, therefore, is a process by which one attempts to discover a deeper revelation of the word by starting with the biblical truth, but over time, uh, taking out the revelation of the truth until the end doctrine has progressed beyond what is found in scripture. In, In other words, they're taking out truth and they're adding their own and the individual, uh, ends up in error. Certainly other examples of this exist, but the final most dangerous derivative is a belief that hell doesn't exist. Popularized by progressive universalist theologians, good grief, I cannot talk tonight, like Rob Bell, um, Father Richard uh, Rohr, and Carlton Pearson, this false notion begins like all others in truth, but then quickly shifts into area. In this case, the hell does not exist starts from a biblical premises that God is good and he wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. For From there, the human logic, among other things, wrongly assumes that God's intention always come to pass. As such, this progressive ideology twists the nature of God's grace and erases the idea of eternal consequences both for the believer and the unbeliever. Finally, the theory is this. If God is good, there can be no hell. That's what they come from. So the conclusion, there is no hell, violates foundational truths of the Bible, such as free will, personal responsibility, and the born-again experience of the believer. Now, this is important. Um, I think I'm going to end with this, and then uh, we will, well, darn it, um, 
I might go on a little bit longer here because we're not quite at an hour just so I can finish this thought that we're on. Okay, so you take a truth and then you twist it in some conclusion that means the exact opposite of what God ever intended. The scripture that God desires that all men be saved is a truth. But there are two words for will in the Bible. Uh, Theolus, I think, and Buolus. Um, I'd have to get the the um, correct spelling and, and things like that. But I've taught on this uh, at the Hub. One of them is the absolute will of God that will happen. So when you look at the coming of Jesus Christ, that he'd be born uh, in a certain city, he would uh, die on the cross, et cetera, et cetera. Those were things that were the will of God that no one and no demon, no man, no one could change. They were going to happen. The same thing as the end of the age. He is returning again. There will be an antichrist. I mean, all of those things, they're going to happen. But there's another word for will that is a dream of God. It's what he desires, but it doesn't always happen. So for example, the Bible says that we were all healed by his stripes, past tense. That's Peter quoting Isaiah 53, where it says, by his stripes, you are healed, present tense. But is everyone healed? No. But the will and the desire of God is that everybody is. So then that puts on us a responsibility to believe the word, to study it, to rise to the level of preparation, as my friend Coach Greg says, uh, not, you know, rise to whatever trial you're going through. By then it's, you know, a little bit late and you have to play catch up. So there are certain things where you have to understand this is the absolute will of God that is going to happen no matter what. And these are the desires of God. And our desire should make his desires a reality, which means we know we're not going to get 100% of people born again. I mean, heck, we can't even get all Christians to say that heaven and hell exist. But it does mean that we're going to work the best we can to make that happen. So when you look at God's will is it all saved. And then you come to the conclusion that because of that hell can exist, that is where error and heresy is formed. So again, it sounds good, but it's not true. And uh, again, this is happening in all denominations. Okay, so let me take you over to um, the time of Hitler. During Hitler's time, there became what was called Positives Christentum, the positive Christianity of Nazi Germany. I'm going to read out of this book. It says, there are few more modern, vivid, and frightening examples of detaching oneself from the teachings of the Bible than Nazi Germany. Though Hitler arguably had no religion other than himself, and many of his officers, such as Bormann, Heydrich, and Himmler, sought to eradicate Christianity from the Third Reich, there existed a subset of Deutsch Christians who wished to create a seamless connection between National Socialism and Christianity. Essentially, certain Nazis thought it quite pertinent to attempt to harmonize Hitler's brand of National Socialism with their Christian faith. Biographer Eric Metataxis draws attention to this faith-filled subset of the Nazi party in his acclaimed book, Bonhoeffer, writing about the problem scripture presented to Hitler's Deutsch Christians as they tried to meld Christianity with the teachings of the Third Reich. He wrote, a group of them stated that the written word of scripture was the problem. Whereas the Jews were the first to write out their faith, they said, Jesus never did so. True German Christianity must therefore move beyond written words. A demon always resides 
in the written word they added. Wow. So they soon discovered the only way to effectively integrate true Christian faith with the racist dogmas of national socialism was to selectively utilize the suitable traditions of the church while blotting out what they perceived to be the blemishes of the Bible, such as God's covenant with Israel, the miraculous birth of Jesus, the suffering of Christ, individual repentance, and heaven and hell. What resulted was a Frankenstein-like faith referred in the Third Reich as positivist Christentum or positive Christianity. By engaging such, uh, exchanging such critical components of the gospel for agenda-driven propaganda, this new form of pseudo-Christianity transformed Jesus into more of a nationalistic community organizer capable of restoring the dignity of the German people after the humiliating defeat of World War One, and this is still happening today. So he talks about um, you know how people are removing obviously the tainted uh, you know Third Reich Nazi Party situation, but the left is now creating a new version of po- positive Christianity, Christianity that still carries the focus on the positive aspects of Jesus without any mention of repentance and the transformative work of Holy Spirit and Lordship. He says, Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg can be heard channeling this neo-positive Christendom in a recent comment while on the presidential campaign trail in 2019. When I think about where most of of Scripture points me, it is toward defending the poor and the immigrant and the stranger and the prisoner and the outcast and those who are left behind by the way society works. So it sounds good. Sounds good. It's like, okay, yeah, absolutely. We need to defend the poor. We need to defend the immigrant and the stranger and the prisoner and the outcast. Absolutely. Sure. Well, then he says, I think most Christians got that it's wrong to discriminate against LGBTQ people, and it's time for us to move to a more inclusive and more human vision of faith. For Buttigieg, good grief, I'm so sorry, guys. It seems that his more humane vision of faith is a faith that is willing to compromise Scripture for the sake of inclusion. He gladly reduces Christianity to a form of social justice so as not to risk drawing attention to Scriptures that violate his socialist anti-biblical and personal agendas. However, statements like his carry with them significant subtext, namely, the Bible must change. And for Mayor Pete, an openly gay politician and Christian leftist, it must. And then you have Booker. Cory Booker, known for speaking about his own brand of faith, testified to the crowd at a CNN town hall in early 2019, stating, I believe that the Bible talks more about poverty, about greeting the stranger, about their about being there for the convicted far more than it talks about the kind of toxic stuff you often hear the president spewing out there. He went on to add, before you tell me about your religion, show it to me and how you treat other people. Booker, like Buttigieg, parrots the same spiritless social justice version of Jesus almost verbatim, as if they're reading from the same script. And then formal liberal candidate Andrew Yang, who later endorsed Joe Biden, offered a slightly more creative version to the narrative uh, to validate the union of his brand of faith and politics, enlisting the support of his pastor, Reverend Dr. Mark E. Mast. Mast wrote, Universal basic income is a beginning for followers of Christ and all who believe in putting humanity first. To begin to love our neighbors as ourselves and begin caring for and helping others the way we have been commanded. 
In this revivification of positive Christianity, there could be no talk of sin or godliness, as such truths would only expose how detached the real gospel of the left really is. Rather, the Christian left must keep its focus on Jesus, champion for the poor, or Jesus, the great equalizer of wealth, or Jesus, lover of people regardless of their sexual orientation or societal status. It's the same thing, guys. It's the same thing. The enemy just rebrands it. Okay? So I want to end with um, the definitions that you may see uh, in media uh, between left and right. I want to read those for you. And then next week, we'll continue our discussion of the melding of the Christian left and state and then some of the animosity and the hostility and how all of it is rooted in uh, Nimrod. But he's got some definitions in his book on page 46. So for the left, you have liberalism, which is a political doctrine that believes that government oversight and increased regulations are necessary to protect individuals. On the right, we have conservatism, a political philosophy based on traditional values, limited government, and adherence to established constitutional intentions. On the left, there's then socialism, that's under liberalism, and it's a system or condition of society in which the means of production are owned and controlled by the state. On the right, there's nationalism, which is basically you have allegiance to one's country. On the left, you next have communism, a totalitarian system of government in which a single authoritarian party controls state-owned means of production, which we are headed that direction if we don't do something. The nominee for the comptroller that Biden uh, selected was raised in uh, communism and thinks it's a pretty good system and wants to do away with banks. Well, on the right, what as you go down into more dangerous ideas, you have fascism. It's a political philosophy, movement, or regime that exalts nation, often race above the individual, and that stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader, severe economic and social regimentation, and forcible suppression of opposition. On the left, you have Antifa, which is short for anti-fascist, known for rioting, vandalism, and attacking police. And on the right, you have alt-right white nationalists, which is a hate group for racial prejudice and white supremacy. And then finally on the left, you have anarchism, which advocates violence as the means to rebel against authority and overthrow the established order. And on the right, you have religious hate groups, which are various groups built upon so-called religious fundamentalism and at times violence like the KKK, radical Islamists, etc., so what's the purpose of giving you these de- de- definitions? Both left and right can go south really quick. That's why we need the Bible as a true source and compass of our lives. Now, I don't necessarily believe that nationalism is necessarily bad uh, uh, unless you say, well, your only uh, allegiance is to the United States of America because now you're putting your country above God nationalism before Hitler was you were patriotic. So I guess we can use the word patriotism, but now a lot of leftists are trying to join patriotism to uh, nationalism, and that is a false narrative. So this week, um, we're going to go ahead and end this. Um, I usually have something that you can do at the end and some good news, so I'm going to give you that. Again, recommended reading is The Christian Left, and I also wanted to recommend a website called Wall wallbuilders.com it has true history um, that 
is just absolutely fabulous and uh, it's a good way to you know and obviously has the Christian aspect but it's a good way to educate yourself on our nation its history so that you can pass it on to others now the good news is um, there in uh, Illinois some high school students were taken to their homecoming dance uh, the other night because um, there was a wreck uh, it says, with full lights and sirens, police took four Illinois high school students to their homecoming dance the other night. They didn't load the kids in a police van after busting them for bad acts, if that's what you're thinking. In fact, the opposite was true of the four Johnsburg high school students' behavior. Four Illinois teens were dressed to the nines and enjoying dinner out when their minds shifted away from typical teenage excitement about a homecoming dance to the multi-vehicle pileup near the restaurant. They abandoned their dinner to help out the crash scene. When police arrived, they were consoling and caring for several children they'd pulled from cars. Their selfless act made them late for the dance, so police gave them an escort. <laughs> That's great. So what can you do? I want to end this episode with some very practical advice, and that's this. We must know the word. And so uh, every week I've had one day in my week now I'm not saying you have to do this I'm just going to give you an example where all I do is say the Bible all day and I wake up I have some coffee I read I listen to a couple of teachings and then I dive into the Bible anywhere from um, one to four hours and I've done this for gosh since 1998 I believe so it's been a really long time and I believe that because I have dug and dived into the word so deeply, it has saved me from a lot of false doctrine. And it's opened up doctrine that I guess you could say is a restoration of New Testament, you know, Christian doctrine, the foundation of our faith. You may not be able to do that. I mean, if you want to, it's absolutely fabulous and one of my favorite things. But what you can do is devote 30 minutes a day to deeply studying and pondering the scriptures get you a Strong's Concordance, or get you the Passion Translation, that alone and reading the New Testament in there will be very, very helpful for you. And make the Word of God a priority. Eat it, consume it, write it out, meditate on it. As you do that, it will protect you from some of the false doctrine and deception that is out there even in the church. So that is my practical advice. Be a student of the Word. And allow it to disciple yourself. And if uh, you want to go even further, find other people that are in the Word and you guys share your ideas. But be aware of anything coming from anyone that is uh, disempowering or that enforces the ideas of being a sinner. Because that, ladies and gentlemen, is not from God. Until next week, God bless America.